you are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is your host, Corbin Smith, here for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for our Thursday show, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. It's Tinder Thursday, Restricted Free Agent Edition, plus in celebration of Black History Month, we're going to look back at the best draft picks in Seahawks history who played at historically black colleges and universities. Let's get to it. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. The Seahawks have bolstered depth in the backfield by re-signing one of their free agents, but it wasn't Chris Carson and it wasn't Carlos Hyde. As indicated by the NFL's official transaction report on Wednesday, the team has agreed to terms with Alex Collins on a new one-year deal. Rob, I've been arguing for this since the wild card round lost, probably to the point that you were starting to go bonkers a little bit. Why does he keep talking about Alex Collins? But This seemed like the only logical move Seattle could make with this particular player because he played really well in the three games that he was on the active roster last year. He had that decisive touchdown late in the season finale against the 49ers, 18 rushes for 77 yards, over four yards per carry, a couple of scores. He's only 26. He missed basically a year and a half out of the league, so he's fresh. The guy didn't get any carries during that time. And this is a guy that was a workhorse at Arkansas. And so I thought all along it made a lot of sense to re-sign him. I think looking at the context of the salary cap, though, this really is telling to me in regard to what the Seahawks' plans are for Chris Carson and potentially Carlos Hyde. I, I, I think it is a possibility that this is a uh, you know indicator of what Seattle's plans are with Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde. I think you're right, Corbin. And, and I think anybody who watched the Seahawks down the stretch saw that what Alex Collins did um, and, and just how fresh his legs were. I mean, he looked like a whole different back than the guy that Seattle originally signed a couple of years ago out of Arkansas, who was a very successful back when the Seahawks trapped him originally. I mean, he was kind of a guy who could you know push the pile, a big physical back, had been very successful in the SEC. And then he comes back and after a couple of years, you know, bouncing around the NFL, you know, in Baltimore and elsewhere that you you saw him in Seattle and he had light feet. I mean, he was very productive down the stretch. And I think there's going to be a lot of speculation, a lot of, you know, questions about whether Seattle is going to bring back Chris Carson, bring back Carlos Hyde. And I'm not so sure either one of those two players are going to be willing to come back for a a, a team-friendly deal. And yet Alex Collins, because he has had a little bit of time outside of the NFL, then he's hungry to get his opportunity. And considering the way that he played and considering how well that he fits into Seattle's offense now, as well as then, again, when Seattle I originally drafted him, I I think it makes all the sense in the world. And and so because this is going to be a deal that's going to be, you know, palatable to Seattle's salary cap, he's a guy that fits in your offense. He is, as you just mentioned, a very young player still. Yeah, I I think that you are basically getting nickels on the dollar. Absolutely sign Alex Collins back. And I think he's got a chance to, you know, depending on what Seattle decides to do at the running back position, but 
Uh, I think that Alex Collins proved himself that he's not only just kind of, you know, the, the backstreet fodder. I, I think that he's a chance to be a, a starter or at least part of Seattle's starting rotation at the running back position. And you probably got him for very cheap. So I, to me, this is exactly the type of deal that we've been talking about that the John Schneider might be able to pull off. And it looks like they, he just did so. And so this could be a really big deal for the Seahawks moving forward. I agree with you. When I look at the way he ran the ball, I'm comparing his first time in Seattle. Obviously, he was a fifth-round pick for the Seahawks back in 2016, and he had his struggles that rookie year. He didn't get a lot of opportunities. They had Eddie Lacy, Thomas Rawlson, those guys in front of him, and late in the season, he got a little bit of run. He had a really good performance against the Arizona Cardinals. That was his one really solid game as a rookie, but they had other bodies there before the start of the 2017 season. Actually, I believe that's when they had brought in Eddie Lacy. Then they had drafted Chris Carson at that point. And so he just had a number of other running backs he was competing against, and he wasn't able to move up the depth chart, ended up getting cut. But when I compare the way he was running his rookie season to what we saw the three games last year, the most notable difference to me, I thought Alex Collins at the college level was a pretty powerful runner. I didn't see that in his first stint with the Seahawks. I didn't see the physicality. I didn't see the ability to finish with authority that we saw when he was with the Razorbacks. And it really surprised me that came back last year. And maybe just because he was on the brink, almost completely out of the NFL. And when you have a player that's facing a desperate situation like that, you get the best out of them. I don't know what it was, but I like to call running backs that really truck people and run through defenders. I like to call them face mask breakers. And I thought Alex Collins looked like a face mask breaker last season in his limited action with the Seahawks, especially the 49ers game. He was not going to be denied. And this is a guy that's got good size. And when he's using that size to be a punishing runner, to go with the light feet that he has as an Irish dancer, that's quite the combination out of the backfield. And I just thought he was more decisive. He was making his cuts. He was finding running lanes, and then he was finishing by bowling over defenders, hurdling guys. He just looked fantastic, specifically in that 49ers game against a defense, even with the injuries San Francisco had, was still a very good defense. He was knifing through and running through that defense in the fourth quarter when he got his opportunities. And so Pete Carroll made it clear in his end-of-season press conference he wanted to bring Alex Collins back. I am not surprised at all. And as far as his standing with the team – unless Chris Carson is brought back or they make another big splash in the running back position. I think Alex Collins is going to have a chance to compete for a starting role. They still hope Rashad Penny is going to end up winning that job. But at this stage, Penny's got to earn that opportunity. Who better to have him compete against than a guy like Alex Collins that's been out of the league and now he found his way back in. He's hungry for his opportunities. He played well last year. He's going to have a legitimate chance to win a starting job. And if he ends up being good, as you mentioned, at the cost we're talking about, I guarantee it's veterans minimum or close to it. You are getting an absolute steal with the way this kid ran for them in his limited action last season. That's the thing is that to me, this is a really interesting kind of statement by the Seahawks. I think that, that, you know, there's still a possibility that the Seahawks are going to bring back Chris Carson or Carlos Hyde. But I think that that possibility, if I was a betting man in, in, in Vegas right now, I, I would be betting less 
that, that the Seahawks are going to bring back Chris Carson or Carlos Hyde after the fact that the, the Seahawks just resigned, uh, you know, Alex Collins. Because you just look at his his skill set, you look at his age, you look at the fact that Seattle drafted him originally, brought him back after he was not only successful in those just those those, those flashes of preseason games in which he played for the Seahawks before he was released. Then he goes to the Baltimore Ravens has a has a pre you know, underrated year for the Ravens. I mean, he, he ran for almost a thousand yards for the Baltimore Ravens, despite never really truly being their franchise, their, their, their number one back. And so I think that you look at him and, and you, you look at the way that Rashad Penny and, and his speed and Alex Collins and his kind of a bullish kind of mentality, being able to knock guys on the keister. And then again, you, you mentioned the light feet. I mean, that's the thing that that was a, he was a whole completely different back th- this season than he was when Seattle drafted him originally. I mean, that was one of the most exciting things about him was like, this is like a guy that, that looks like a, a guy who might be able to just kind of, kind of, take over the entire, uh, you know, running game in, in himself. And that's the thing is that it's, it's really exciting about the, the improvement that he has shown. It's similar to Chris Carson. And so you, you assume that Chris Carson is going to sign some kind of big deal with some kind of other club. I mean, that's the thing is, is Seattle is up against the salary cap. They have the four draft picks. You know, they don't want to have to draft another running back. You know, they don't want to have to send Chris Carson back to a big time deal. If they got Alex Collins for as cheap as I anticipate that they did, that just makes so much more sense for the way that they're trying to build this roster. And that creates so much more opportunity for Seattle to be able to use some of those dollars, use some of those draft picks on some of the other positions of concern, most notably the offensive line. And he is one of only, I believe, three running backs in SEC history with three straight thousand yard seasons. It's a rare feat. And Herschel Walker was one of the others. I don't have the third one in front of me, but he's in rare company. And so who better to come in and push Rashad Penny and potentially take that starting role? It's going to be a fun race in training camp. Maybe somebody like Carlos Hyde or Mike Davis is brought in to add another veteran at a fairly cheap rate to add to the competition, but they have DJ Dallas. They have Travis Homer as well. If you upgrade the offensive line, I think that's more than good enough of a running back group with the other weapons the Seahawks have. And so we'll just have to see what their other moves are at this position. But this is telling to me that they're probably going to be moving on from Chris Carson and most likely Carlos Hyde as well. We'll just have to wait and see. When we come back in the second quarter, we're going to be looking at Seattle's four restricted free agents Here on Tinder Thursday, will we swipe right to keep them or swipe left and let them walk? We'll find out here in a few moments. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. RockAuto.com's prices are the same for everybody and are reliably low. RockAuto.com always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear like airlines do. RockAuto.com is for everybody and does not require membership or account login. It's a family business serving auto part customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. 
Quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brand specifications and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck right locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me for our Thursday show, Rob Rang. February is Black History Month, and the Locked On Podcast Network is honoring the challenges and success of black men and women in sports with a new series called Locked On Presents More Than the Game. This week, we have two conversations for you to wrap up the month. First, a discussion on protest in sports across leagues. Then tune in for a discussion on the importance of black history in sports, what's been achieved, and the important work left to be done, all in discussions on the Locked On Presents podcast feed. Subscribe on the Radio.com app or wherever you get podcasts. Up to this point, we have covered the vast majority of Seattle's unrestricted free agents. They currently have 22 players set to become unrestricted free agents at the start of the new league year. But Seattle also has four players that are scheduled to be restricted free agents. Now, Rob, we go through this every year. It's obviously different than unrestricted free agency. Teams can't just come in and sign a player like Puna Ford instantly, and he can go wherever he wants. But there is the ability for teams to be able to come in and try to sign restricted free agents. They have to give up draft picks if the other team, in this case the Seahawks, puts a tender on the player. So really, this isn't Tinder Thursday as much as it's Tender Thursday. And there are a number of different options that you and I are going to have at our disposal. If we choose to swipe right on these players, that gives us the ability to either offer them a long-term extension or we can give a first-round tender, a second-round tender, and an original-round tender. The difference is first-round tender is the most expensive, second-round tender a little bit less, and then original-round tender is the cheapest. Undrafted players like Puna Ford and original tender teams would not be giving up a draft pick if they end up signing that player but if the Seahawks allow another team to sign Puna Ford and he has a second round tender for example that team has to give up a second round pick and so it's a really interesting system I actually like how the NFL does restricted free agency so let's start on the offensive side of the football the Seahawks have two offensive linemen that are slated to be restricted free agents Our first one on tap here, Kyle Fuller, he dressed for the majority of Seattle's games last year. He had one start when Ethan Posick got banged up. He started the game against the Rams in Los Angeles in Week 10. Really had his trouble in that game, but it's worth noting he played most of the game with a high ankle sprain, so he was gutting through an injury that's extremely painful. This is a player the Seahawks have really liked the couple years they've had him on practice squad and active roster. He can play both guard positions as well. So this is a player that I don't know necessarily he's worth tendering, but you don't have a current center on the roster. If Ethan Postick's not brought back and you go out and you sign a bigger name or you draft a center, it still may make sense to keep Kyle Fuller around maybe on a separate contract. If you let him hit unrestricted free agency, he might be a player that you're able to re-sign. What do you think the Seahawks should do with Kyle Fuller? 
Well, it's a really interesting question because as you mentioned, you know, at 6'5", 320 pounds, this is a guy who has a little bit of positional versatility. I mean, he can play that center position. He can also play left guard. Um, I, I think he can also play the right guard position. He's shown the, the the light feet and lateral agility to be able to do exactly that. At the same time, I mean, for the Seahawks, he, he really has only played the the one game in which he started. And so you have some concerns there, but, but still, I think that he, is at least worth a late round tender and restricted free agency. I mean, he, he is a guy that, again, has enough upside to him that, that you may want to consider bringing back because of that positional versatility. I, I personally am a huge fan of this particular draft class in, in the not only the talent, the center position, but as well as the guard position. And so I don't know that you want to go too high with, with Kyle Fuller, but still, um, considering all the issues that Seattle has with the salary cap, I think that Kyle Fuller is one of the players that you might be considering swiping right because this is a guy who you know has a little bit of talent to him and is still a young player yeah I think I'm going to swipe left but with the caveat that I could bring him back later in free agency if I need a backup center and a guy that can play both guard spots as well I'm not against the idea of bringing him back but I'm not going to give an original round tender that's 2.13 million dollars that's the estimate right now again we don't know what the official salary cap number is going to be but I'm not paying Kyle Fuller over $2 million to retain him. If I can bring him back on a more team-friendly deal as an unrestricted free agent, I'm willing to take my chances with him hitting the market. Now, the second lineman here, I think this one is going to be a little bit more complicated because Jordan Simmons played a lot of football for the Seahawks last season. They've loved him since they signed him. We know the injury history dating back to his time at USC, only played a handful of games in college. But Rob, last year was the healthiest season he's had since high school. He played 14 games. He started six in the left guard position. He stepped in for Damian Lewis in a couple of games, had a game where he started a right guard. I mean, this guy was as invaluable as any player the Seahawks had in their offensive line because of his versatility and the fact that he was able to step in in a pinch. And he had a few games he really struggled, but overall, a pretty solid season. He's still only 26. He's going to be 27 in July. He fits with the Seahawks, have won it at the guard spot, but it comes back to that idea with the new coordinator and Shane Waldron. Is this necessarily going to be the type of body type the Seahawks are going to want at their guard spots moving forward? That is the million-dollar question here. I think we should go into the assumption that Seattle may be willing to still keep players like this we just don't know enough about what the offense is going to look like, what kind of players they're looking for. But because of his starting experience, this might be a player that you're more inclined to use an original round tender on. Oh, I, I think you could. I, I, th- to me, Jordan Simmons is very much one of the guys who's going to be an indicator of what Seattle is looking to do moving forward. I mean, if, if this was a, a team that is looking to do what Mike Solari as the offensive line coach has, has always kind of preached and what, uh, you know, Pete Carroll was kind of preached as far as running the ball down your throats. And yeah, it's six, four, 335 pounds. And when he's on the field, this guy's a difference maker. You know, we were, we were talking yesterday uh, about some of the guys in this draft class, like Alabama center, you know, the, the Remington trophy award winner, Landon Dickerson is a guy who can, you know, either make a resume for a general manager who drafts him or ruin 
a resume if they draft him too early because he's had such durability issues. And that's the thing, as you just mentioned, Jordan Simmons, this is this past season when he was not healthy for all 17 regular season games. At the same time, that, that was the most healthy he's ever been since his high school days, as you mentioned. That's the concern about this guy is that I think if Seattle wants to continue to try to run the ball down teams' throats, and yeah, you, you, this Jordan Simmons is a really good fit for this offense that you are likely to be able to get relatively inexpensively. But at the same time, you have your concerns. If the, the durability concerns, even if you stay with the same scheme, if, if you're asking Seattle's offense to go out to a little bit more of the wide zone and things like that, then, then I don't know that he has that type of mobility to be able to fit into that type of scheme. You know, and so that's the thing. It's going to be fascinating because, again, I think Jordan Simmons is a good football player. I think he fits in very, very nicely with, with what Seattle has been able to do for the last couple of years. I just don't know that what Seattle has done for the last couple of years is what Seattle is looking to do in 2021. So I, I, I think that he's a possibility that you're going to bring him back. I also think that you're not going to spend too much money on a guy that your new offensive coordinator isn't necessarily going to see him as a fit to your new scheme. Yeah, I'm going to swipe left too for some of the same reasons. I'm most concerned about the durability. I mean, he was extremely healthy for his standards last year, but can you count on him to do that again? Can you count on him to be a starter at left guard that is a possibility if they're going to keep the same type of lineman. He has played at a level that he maybe could be a starter. The issue all along has just been, can you keep him healthy long enough? I think there's a good chance he comes back. Similar, like I said, with Kyle Fuller, I think you could bring him back on a cheaper contract because Seahawks actually did that with Jordan Simmons last year when he was an exclusive rights free agent. They did not give him a tender. He became an unrestricted free agent. They quickly re-signed him. I can see the Seahawks doing that again to protect themselves a little bit because of his durability issues. But again, a lot of this bears in the type of offense they're going to run. If Shane Waldron wants more athletic mobile guards and Jordan Simmons is let go, that'll be an indicator that they're going to be leaning that direction. So we'll just have to see. I think he's another player that right now they're not going to tender. Maybe they keep the same type of players he's brought back at a more affordable contract. Now on defense, Shaquem Griffin, Last season was released coming out of training camp. It really surprised me. The camp practices that I was at, I thought Shaquem Griffin looked really solid, but they have a ton of good linebackers. And so he was kind of boxed out the fact that he hasn't been able to emerge as a consistent pass rusher at under 220 pounds. Shouldn't be a surprise. He's been a good special teams guy. This seems to me like a player, as much as I like him, I think the Seahawks should have interest in bringing him back but he's another player. I'm not paying over $2 million on an original round tender to be able to keep him. The one difference here is if another team maybe had interest, you would get a fifth round pick if they signed him, but nobody claimed him off waivers last year. I I just don't see the interest league wide to give up a late round pick being there. So this seems like another player to me that you swipe left and you hope that he's still available in free agency and you can bring him back as a special teams guy and a rotational pass rusher and a more affordable contract. Shaquem Griffin is going to be a really interesting evaluation for the Seahawks because I, I wonder how much of it is the partner deal with Shaquille Griffin, obviously his twin brother, the cornerback who I think that that is likely to get a big time deal. 
I, I agree with you, Corb, but I, I don't know that Shaquem Griffin is going to get any type of real interest from very many NFL teams unless it's on the, the veteran minimum. I mean, you, you look at his you look at his statistics. I mean, three years in the NFL, he has a total of twenty five combined tackles. He he has you know virtually he has one sack. Now that came this past season, uh, you know he's not proven to be the difference maker that he was in Central Florida. I mean, he is a good special teams player. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he is among Seattle's fastest guys down the field on punt returns, on kick returns. He is a flashy player, um, you know, and obviously gets plenty of attention for all kinds of different reasons. At the same time, is he really, for a team that is backed up against a salary cap the way that Seattle is, that has the talent and the linebacker the way that Seattle, and, and defensive end, the way that Seattle does, is this a guy that you actually want to be among the 53? And, and that's the thing is I don't know that he is. So I, I think that you're having a conversation about is he a guy that you can bring back, you know, if nobody else signs him? And, and if you if you do sign him back, can you convince his brother to come back on a relatively palatable deal you know, at the quarterback position? So to me, this is going to be, again, it's kind of like the running back position we were talking about before. I think this is going to be fascinating. What, what Seattle decides to do with Shaquem Griffin, because I don't think that he's a difference maker. And he absolutely was that at Central Florida. He was a spectacular player at Central Florida. He was a spectacular player at the Senior Bowl. I had an opportunity to evaluate him there playing every single position virtually, and, and he was spectacular. He has proven to be a good player, not a difference-making player in the NFL. And so if you're not a difference-maker, then it's really hard to bring you back on a second contract. So again, I, I think the Seattle is going to have to kind of, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what they do because I'm not so sure that Shaquem Griffin is necessarily guaranteed to come back in 2021 for the Seahawks. I still feel like he hasn't necessarily been used right by the Seahawks. I think what we saw them do with him against the Cowboys once they had brought him back to the active roster where they were moving him around some, they used him in a spy. It feels like as a rotational sub package player that they haven't really gotten as much out of him as they can, but now he's been in the league for three years. I I just don't know that the Seahawks feel at this point that, they can get much more out of him. If they do think they can, then that's a guy that you can consider re-signing once he becomes an unrestricted free agent. You can bring him back. I just Again, I like Shaquem Griffin a lot, and I think he's got some upside still. I just don't think you pay over $2 million with the salary cap issues that teams are dealing with right now. I don't think you give him a tender. You hope he falls through the cracks, and maybe you can bring him back in a cheaper deal, and it would make sense. Now, this last guy, Puna Ford, has become one of the best defensive tackles in the NFC. Pro Football Focus believes that. When I watched the film, I believe that. We started to see him really come on as a pass rusher. He had 28 pressures last year in the quarterback. So this kid really coming into his own. We know he's a great run defender. He's been that since coming into the league as an undrafted free agent out of Texas. This one, to me, is pretty simple as in regard to the tender. This is a player that, to me, is absolutely worth a second round tender at $3.384 million. He has earned that money. And I would give him that tender under the premise, I'm going to try to extend you. Because to me, Jaron Reed's a good player. I think Puna Ford still has a lot of upside that he has yet to touch. 
I think Puna Ford is an all-around player, has a chance to be a better player. He's younger, significantly younger. And I feel like if you could get him extended now, you might save yourself a few bucks and you can lock up a guy that can be a cornerstone of your defensive line for years to come. So I am absolutely swiping right. I'm not letting Puna Ford get away. And I'm trying to see if I can get a few more years tacked onto that contract after I have placed the tender. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Corbett. I mean, you know how things go. I mean, it would be better for radio or for podcasts for me to argue with you. But you're talking about a 25-year-old player who in three years in the NFL has gotten better and better and better. Um, you know, his ability to to penetrate gaps and to be a run stuffer as well as a quarterback harasser. You know, he again, they're talking about a guy who only has two and a half sacks over his three year NFL career. But I think that he's still an ascending kind of a quarterback harasser. And that that's a big thing. Everybody talks about quarterback sacks. It's quarterback pressures that really can, can be a big game changer in the NFL, um, considering how quickly quarterbacks get the ball out of their hands anymore. And Puna Ford's initial quickness um, is something to behold. It really is one of the, the most intriguing things about Seattle's defensive line over the last couple of years. So, yeah, I absolutely agree. Seattle has to bring back Puna Ford. And if it's the second-round tender, then I think that you might be talking about a bargain at that point. And I absolutely am looking to extend him because this is not just a guy who has played well since being since being brought in as an undrafted free agent with the Seahawks from Texas. This was a guy who was really productive at, the, at Texas as well. And so, again, this is not a player who I think that you are likely to see the drop-off. If you give him a little bit of money, I think that this is the kind of player who's going to continue to play very, very well. And that's the kind of players that you're trying to build around rather than some of the, the guys who are you know maybe drafted early on that once they get that big contract and they kind of re- you know rest on their laurels, so to speak. And I don't think that's put afford at all. And, and so that's the kind of guy that you're looking to build upon. And, and this is the kind of guy that I think that Seattle is looking to build their entire scheme around. And so all the more reason to be able to sign him again. Yeah, I think that's going to be one of the big storylines to watch. There's so many of them this offseason, but what they choose to do with Puna Ford, I think at minimum you've got to get that tender just to protect him and ensure that he is on your team to try to get him extended with a long-term deal that he has absolutely earned. When we come back in the third quarter, it is Black History Month. We are going to look back at the top five players that the Seahawks have drafted in their franchise history out of historically black colleges and universities. Looking forward to a little bit of a history lesson from two guys, one former history teacher, one that is still a history teacher here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. We'll be right back. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but the NBA, college basketball, and NHL are in full swing. Bet online even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. Real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. Bet online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit using the code Locked On. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. 
Thursday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined by Rob Rang. Thursdays on Locked on NFL are a must-listen as Ryan Tracy and Jake Liskow break down teams across the NFL from an analytics and team-building perspective. Get the expert analysis on your favorite teams from Ryan and Jake every Thursday. Subscribe to the Locked on NFL podcast wherever you get your podcasts. To celebrate Black History Month, we're going to look back in Seahawks history at the top five players that the Seahawks have drafted out of historically black colleges and universities. And I know this is a big deal to both you and I being former and current history teachers. We really value looking back at the history of basically everything, including the NFL and college football, really the sport of football in general. And we have all these incredible black players in the NFL that are lighting things up each weekend in the league. And it's crazy to think that less than 100 years ago, black players were banned in the NFL from 1936 to 1946. And then there were unwritten rules for a long time. Not very many black players on NFL rosters going into the 1960s. Under 15% of the players were black. It's crazy to believe that recently that the NFL looked that way And then the AFL came into play, and that really forced the NFL to change their ways. It really did. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, talent is talent. You look across the NFL, some of the best players in the NFL. Oh, by the way, Walter Payton. Oh, by the way, Jerry Rice. You know, I mean, Michael Strahan. I mean, some of Shannon Sharp. I mean, some of the best players in the league history have come from historically black colleges. And so to me, it's not just the historical aspect as far as being a teacher. It's about just the, just the, the acknowledgement that, that really good players come from different universities. And if you're trying to win the way that John Schneider and Pete Carroll are trying to win, then you are going to look everywhere and anywhere that you possibly can to be able to bring talent to your roster. And, and that's the thing is that the Seahawks, once they became an organization in 1976, then, then they were one of the NFL teams that was looking to, um, you know, to bring in players as quickly as they possibly could that could actually help them win. And, and so to me, that's one of the exciting things about that is that, again, I, I mentioned before, Dwayne Harper, Edwin Bailey, both of them coming from South Carolina State specifically. I mean, there, there are so many different really good football players who have come from those universities. Uh, who I, I think that it's it's an interesting thing that the NFL teams and, and just fans in general could use a little bit of a history lesson right here because we, we all know that there are so many really good black players in the NFL. There, there are lots of good white players in the NFL. But once you start limiting the player pool in which you're going to select, then, then you're basically not going to win. You know, and so that's the thing is that you have to be able to consider every single possible player if you actually want to compete for championships. And that's one of the things that I, I, I'm excited about for, for Seahawks fans is that the Seahawks have shown a history of being willing to look wherever they possibly can to bring in the best players. And some of those have come from historically black colleges. Yeah, I want to take just a real quick step back a little bit before we start talking about some of these great Seahawk players that came from HBCUs because you were mentioning how the NFL had to adapt. And what really happened is the AFL came into existence in 1960. And unlike the NFL, they didn't have rules that 
limited or placed quotas on how many black players could be on teams. And so they were aggressively pursuing talent anywhere that they could find it. And next thing you know, the NFL, they've got legitimate competition they've got to worry about. And so the league was forced. Their hands were tied. They needed to change the way they approached roster building, and they had to become much more willing to allow black players into the league. And that was a process that played out fairly quickly. And then eventually, obviously, the two leagues merged together to become the modern NFL that we know today. A lot of this stemmed from the college level, though. Even in 1970, the great Paul Bear Bryant, legendary coach of Alabama, he had for years been clamoring with the administration at Alabama to allow black players on the roster. But in 1970, they did not have a single black player on the roster. The administration has not allowed it. This is what really ultimately changes the game. What happens on the field? USC ran them off the field in their bowl game that year. And that was all that it took for Alabama to change its stance. And they started having black players on their team. So we're talking 1970, just 51 years ago, that top flight programs, particularly in the South, did not have black players. And that's why you saw players like Walter Payton, Jerry Rice, talents like that end up at HBCUs because that was the option that they had. A lot of schools were not recruiting them because of their skin color, and they ended up becoming some of the best players in NFL history. It really tells you a lot about the history of our country, not just the history of football, the path that a lot of those players had to take just to get to the league and ultimately become superstars playing on Sundays. Let's talk Seahawks HBCU, though. Top five players they've picked from HBCUs. My opinion, Dwayne Harper is the best player the Seahawks have ever drafted out of an HBCU. He was an 11th round pick. That tells you the times we're talking about here. 1988, he was an 11th round selection. He played in all 16 games as a rookie, had 34 tackles that year. And then he was a starter the following season, was a starter for the next five seasons. You want to talk about a player that provided rock-solid consistency in the secondary. He started 75 games, 320 tackles, 13 picks, four fumble recoveries. And the statistic that still makes me have my jaw drop every time that I read it, every time that I type it. 1993, he produced a ridiculous 10 forced fumbles which still remains tied for the NFL single-season record. I mean, that's just insane. In 16 games, to force 10 fumbles is just unheard of. It it really is. It's kind of like Charles Peanut Tillman. I mean, he became famous over the last couple of years for his ability to be able to punch out the football, and that's exactly what Dwayne Harper did. I mean, this was a guy who who played for 11 seasons that he started in the NFL – um, you know, and it was abs- or, I'm sorry, 12 seasons in the NFL, not only for the Seahawks, but he started in the Super Bowl for the Chargers. And this is a really good football player and, and a guy that doesn't get enough attention. And so that's the thing is that we are, we are talking about some players here that don't get enough attention as they deserve. And, and I have to go back for a moment. I mean, Corbin, you're, you're just kind of, you know, I mean, scratching my itch as far as the history teacher and kind of talking about how the game has changed. You know, I mean, it, to me, it's not lost on the fact that we're talking about Pete Carroll as a former USC coach. And you, you had referenced before uh, about USC, Alabama and the big game, you know, 
and, and all of that kind of stuff and Bear Bryant, but John McKay and his decision to allow at that point, allow is the key word, black players to be able to compete because they were better than some of the white players that they were competing with against. And, and they dominated Alabama. And this is Alabama. And back in the day, Alabama was every bit as good as Alabama is now, as with all due respect to the current national champions. And at the same time, it was a jaw dropper that the, the black players that were playing for John McKay's USC team helped them beat Alabama, the, the mighty Crimson Tide. And, and so to me, that is one of the things that is really cool about the fact that the Seahawks came in and it was 15, a good solid year, you know, years later after, uh, you know, the, the John McKay and USC were, were able to integrate college football um, that, that the, the Seattle Seahawks, came into the NFL, but at the same time, once they did come into the NFL, they were drafting players from historically black colleges and universities and finding really good players at that. And, and that to me is one of the things is that th there's not a lot, obviously, of historically black colleges and universities that are out here in the Pacific Northwest. But at the same time, Seattle was willing to bring some of those players out this way. And some of those players wound up not only becoming very good players on the field, they, beca they became very good citizens off the field, helping to change the mindset of many people one way or the other. I want to talk about another South Carolina State player that ended up in Seattle a little bit earlier than what Dwayne Harper did. But 1981, Edwin Bailey has one of the more fascinating stories in Seahawks history because he was a fifth-round pick that year, and he started 15 games as a rookie at left guard. That was unheard of back then, that you draft a fifth-rounder on the offensive line and he becomes a starter immediately. And he was a starter his first two seasons. Then they went out and they signed Reggie McKenzie, a former Pro Bowl guard for the Buffalo Bills. They brought him in for a couple seasons and they kicked Bailey to the bench. But, you know, in, in today's era, that probably means Edwin Bailey's time in Seattle is over after four seasons. But that was not the case in the mid 80s. He returned to the starting lineup in 1985. He started 120 out of 139 games in 11 seasons, all with the Seahawks. And he played on four playoff teams as well. He helped open up run lanes for Kurt Warner, 4,000-yard seasons, protecting Dave Craig, you name it. Edwin Bailey is one of the more underrated offensive linemen in team history, and he is the best offensive lineman that ever came from an HBCU. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is that he is one of the guys that was absolutely a difference maker for the Seahawks. I mean, this was not a guy that was physically dominant at the point of attack, but it was his lateral agility. It was his quickness off the ball. He, it was his ability to get to the second level and be able to move people. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's 6'4", 270 pounds, big in those in that in that era, but at the same time, also very athletic, very underrated. The fact that he lasts until the fifth round, frankly, is a little bit of a, of a testament to the fact that how racist the system was back in the day. But at the same time, even after uh, being pushed aside to to the bench for Seattle to be able to kind of persevere and be able to bring himself back up to be a starter and be the starter for as many games as he was, as you mentioned, 120 games back in those days really is a remarkable testament to his talent, to his work ethic, and one of the best players in Seahawks history that doesn't get talked about very often. Rounding out our list of our top five, you might notice there's a small number of schools here. We just had two South Carolina State prospects that were drafted by Seahawks. 
Now we have three straight players from Jackson State. And I want to talk about Robert Hardy. This was the number three guy on my list, nicknamed Heartburn. Hardy joined the Seahawks as a 10th round pick in 1979. So this is just the fourth year of Seattle's existence. And he became an immediate starter at defensive tackle for the Seahawks. 16 games as a rookie. He started 53 out of 54 games in his first four seasons. He produced three fumble recoveries, had a pair of sacks, and that's the ones that are official. He was playing during the time where the first few years of his career, they still were not counting sacks officially, and they didn't count tackles. And so a lot of his statistics were omitted. It'd be interesting to look back if we had those statistics to be able to see what an impact he had, but he started a bunch of games, and if not for an ankle injury that cost him the entire 1983 season and only derailed his career, Hardy was a guy that might have been a focal point in the middle of the defense with Joe Nash throughout the 1980s. He, he may have been. I mean, because this is a guy that, you know, 6'2", 250. I mean, he's a little bit like we're talking about Shaquem Griffin, uh, you know, a little bit earlier. And, you know, we've had so many conversations about players like, uh, you know, Benson Mayoa or even way back in the day, Rufus Porter, these outside edge rushers. And he had that type of electric burst off the field or off the off the uh, off the snap. And, and to be able to, uh, you know, to create immediate pressure, you wouldn't necessarily know that based on his statistics with the Seahawks. As you mentioned, just a couple of, of sacks during his time with the Seahawks. But again, that is the biggest thing is that back in those days that they, they didn't keep official NFL statistics for sacks. But he was a little bit of a difference maker as a guy that that was a productive player for the Seahawks and, and a good a, a good player, a, a guy that uh, you, know, you wish that you could bring in right now because he was a guy that could make, some, uh, make a difference with his initial quickness. Couple other guys rounding out our list from Jackson State. Louise Bullard out of Jackson State. He was drafted in 1978, the fifth round. He dressed for all 16 games as a rookie, started 13 games at left tackle in 1980. That was the only season that he was a full time starter. But this is a guy that played professional football for a long time. He was in the USFL for a few years. He retired in 1985. He was one of those players that was ultimately impacted by there being a new startup league. And a lot of players were going there because the USFL had money the three years that they were in existence. And he was a player that was kind of on the fringe of being an NFL starter, did get to start a bunch of games with the Seahawks in that 1980 season. And then Jeff Moore, the running back, drafted in 1979. All these players were picked in 78 and 79. Three players from Jackson State that get to be teammates in the NFL and Jeff Moore is a guy that's never going to get a lot of notoriety because he was a 12th round pick. He was a backup. He had to scrap to earn a roster spot, but it was something to be a 12th round pick back then and make an NFL roster. And as a rookie, he had 168 rushing yards. He caught 14 passes for 128 yards, had a couple of touchdowns, ended up playing two seasons with the Seahawks, three seasons actually. 385 rushing yards, 42 receptions, a couple touchdowns. So he's a guy that could do a little bit of everything in a reserve role. And that might have been a running back that if he played in the league 15, 20 years later, has a much more significant career because he was kind of ahead of his time being that more versatile back. Well, he really was. I mean, this is a guy who's six foot, 195 pounds, and was a better receiver than he was a runner. To be frankly, you know, frank about it. I mean, this is a guy that we see players in today's NFL, the, the Kenyon Drakes, or you know, guys like that who are guys that that catch the ball 
better, then they can kind of barrel through defenders at the point of attack. And, and so, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think that he was a little bit of, ahead of his time. Not only spent those three seasons uh, with Seattle, spent a, year, a couple of years in San Francisco as well as a year in Washington. I mean, he was a very productive back um, that wound up having not only – production as far as a as a as a runner but also as a as a receiver he was actually in some ways you know was better as a receiver again than he was as a runner so to me those are the type of guys that are a little bit ahead of of their era because back in those days 1970s they weren't throwing to the running backs very often um but he was absolutely one of those that that could have been successful not only in that era but in this era as well and to me kind of going taking a step back corbin i mean that's the thing. It's like when we talk, start talking about historically black colleges, I mean, I, I just, to me, one of the very best players that I ever remember is the late, great Steve McNair. I, I just remember watching him and, and, and the way that he threw the ball, how he dominated that level of competition, and then to wind up being an early first-round selection um, by the then Houston Oilers uh, and to wind up becoming the, the great player that he was. And, you know, the general manager at that time was Floyd Reese, and that was a heck of a gamble, you know, to, to invest the top five selection that they did in Steve McNair coming from that level of competition. To me, it's one of the things that's fascinating about this year's draft, because in some ways it's very similar that we have all kinds of questions about level of competition with some of these players, like a Trey Lance, the quarterback from North Dakota State, of course, who played only one year and then one game this past season, and, and someone is going to draft him in the first round. And that's the same kind of conversation we're having about historically black college players back in the day, is that what was the level of competition in which they face. And so you really had to have astute talent evaluators. That's why I'm so excited about this 2021 NFL draft. The teams that actually have a coaching staff and a scouting staff who know each other, like the Seahawks do, should do very well. And the teams that don't necessarily have that kind of uh, communication ability, they may struggle. And so that's the thing is that's so exciting about this is that it's not just about the historically black college players and, and all of that in February. It's about that this really does tie in to where the Seahawks are looking to move forward in this 2021 NFL draft. One last name real quick I want to throw out here because several of our listeners pointed out the name Eddie Anderson, who had a fantastic NFL career, and he was a sixth-round pick out of Fort Valley State by the Seahawks, but he only played five games for them his rookie season, had very few stats, didn't get a lot of snaps on the field, and then they moved on from him. He ended up with the Raiders and had a very long, successful career, 19 career interceptions, over 800 career tackles. And this is another guy that I think if he played in today's era, Pete Carroll would be salivating because he was 6'1", 205 pounds, kind of a hard-hitting safety that had ball skills. He would have translated very well to the, to the defensive scheme the Seahawks have now. But he was omitted from our top five list because he – didn't really play very many games for the Seahawks, but he was drafted by them and had a very strong career. Anyway, 12s, thanks for listening in to our latest episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob Rang at Rob Rang. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is by checking out our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. We're going to wrap up the week. Blue Friday, Nick Lee will be joining me. We're going to be answering your mailbag questions 
Plus, our first free agent Friday segment, we'll be taking a look at some offensive skill players that the Seahawks may pursue once free agency opens next month. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday. Go Hawks.